Well, hello again, everybody. This is Christian Massar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. So today I'm going to be doing a shortened version of essentially another podcast that I've, I've done in the past, which was the memory of, the, of World War II, or the Great Patriotic War, in the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, the much longer episode will be episode 8. That one is a few hours long. So this one will give a little bit of an intro to that other topic. And uh, if you want to listen to the to a longer one with more detail, please listen to, again, episode 8. So we'll get right into it, but first I have a quick little message. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you'd like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts. Now, let's get back to the episode. When a country is under the threat of foreign invasion, any possible weapon can or will be used in the fight. The same was true during the Soviet Union's Great Patriotic War with Nazi Germany, when the Russian Orthodox Church, or the ROC, helped rouse the Soviet people to the war effort, despite the fact that it had been persecuted under an atheistic so communist government. In modern times, the Church has revered the Soviet Union's epic, holy, battle for survival. But the religious memory of the war is somewhat complicated. How does the memory of anti-religious communist persecution fit with that of, quote, holy Russia fighting Nazism? We will gain some insight into this seeming contradiction. We will also survey some manifestations of the ROC's perspective of the Great Patriotic War, including its memory rituals, literature, and even national exceptionalism in some cases. According to an article published on the website Pravda.ru, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941 helped save the ROC, which had been living under a regime hostile to religion. The crisis was presented as an event that had turned the atheistic nation back to God. In 1943, Stalin made an about-face regarding religion, no longer interested in actively persecuting the church. The article says that this is evident because at the start of the war, between 150 and 400 parishes were active in the Soviet Union. But after a few years, this number increased to 22,000. A monk was quoted in the article who supposedly prophesied that it who supposedly prophesied in 1918 that Germany would invade Russia, actually making Russia stronger. The article notes that the Great Patriotic War with the German invaders continued until May 1945, corresponding to the holidays of George the Victorious and Easter. The war was thus given a religious element. Even more powerful was how the article connected the nation's wartime sacrifices and suffering with the revival of religiosity and the salvation of people's souls. It's well known that the Soviet government persecuted Orthodox Christianity, as mentioned in the Pravda.ru article. Yet this same article paints a positive picture of the Soviet war effort. What is behind this apparent contradiction? To answer this question, we must first look at the Russia's relationship with its dominant religion, Russian Orthodox Christianity. 
How does this relationship in turn affect the view of foreigners in general, and specifically the war against the German invaders of 1941? This will help us analyze what the modern ROC thinks of the Great Patriotic War. For many individuals, one's faith is a critical part of his or her identity. If enough people identify with the religion throughout a nation, it may become part of their national identity and culture. The Russian people are an example of this. For many, Russian Orthodox Christianity is essential to Russianness. It has been said that during the Tsarist regime, Russia had three defining characteristics, quote, autocracy, orthodoxy, and nationality. Russia was even known as the Third Rome for a time, which meant that it was the last stand of, quote, true Christianity. This was a conception of religious and national superiority in which Russians were a kind of, quote, chosen people, and their nation was the final stand of true Christianity. In Russia, religion was, not certainly, was certainly not simply a matter of individual belief. Holy Russia is a term often used to describe the Russian relationship with orthodoxy. The same is true in the post-Soviet era. A survey conducted in 1996 found that 83% of, Rus of religious Russians were Orthodox Christian. Being Orthodox is equivalent to being Russian. Indeed, the Orthodox identity is part of Russian ethnicity and the national soul. So, of course, not every Russian is an Orthodox Christian, not every Russian is religious, but Orthodox Christianity is an important part of that. This has led to radical national religious views which do not have the blessing of the Patriarchate or the leadership of the official Russian Orthodox Church. Such views include the doctrine that God asks Russians to be Russian. The idea here is that Russians have divine favor, and groups such as the Resurre Resurrection Orthodox Brotherhood hold to perceptions of ethnic exceptionalism. In several ways, this ethnic aspect of Russian Orthodoxy has overridden actual religious practice and belief. Studies have discovered that some Russians identified primarily with their ethnicity, not their religious practice. There were, there were many, quote, Orthodox people that did not even believe in God. Such atheists may become religious in a way to, in order to fit with their religious society, or perhaps they adopted a faith identity that reinforced their ethnicity. And of course, this is all up to the individual. One's religiosity is a matter of the heart and a matter of the mind, not necessarily social pressure, but there can be social pressure in that. But in the end, it's a, it's a personal thing, but sometimes trends like this can be found, as these studies show. Father Georgi Chistikov wrote that in the 1990s, some Orthodox simply, believe, simply used their faith as a lens through which they viewed non-Russians as the other. This othering led to an intense fear of foreigners, Catholics, and Protestants, as well as a suspicion of Christian unity movements. In such cases, this power of religious identity has been combined with, this, with the national defensive ideology of the Tsarist period. This wing of orthodoxy has become an ideology like that of old nationalism, autocracy, orthodoxy, and nationality. But things were very different for the orthodox Christians in the Soviet period. Marxist-Leninist ideology upon which the Soviet Union was built was vehemently anti-religious. Faith was believed to be a distraction from the vision of proletarian revolution, as well as a, quote, divisive manifestation of false consciousness. 
both Christians and Muslims suffered martyrdom by the thousands under Soviet religious persecution. Russian Orthodox monasteries were closed, and many church buildings were destroyed or, quote, repurposed to serve the needs of the Communist Party. Coercive pressure was placed on priests and on parents who had had their children baptized. Religion was an anti-Soviet activity that the government mercilessly, mercilessly attempted to extinguish. So how, does this, how did this affect the Soviet Union during World War II? One might think that Orthodox, Christianity would, Orthodox Christians would rejoice at the German invasion. One might imagine Christians across the USSR singing, Hallelujah! Our godless Soviet oppressors will finally be destroyed. Yet, this was not the reality in many cases. Of course, there were uh, Russian, Ukrainian, and other uh, groups that, or peoples and individuals, that helped the Nazis, of course. But this is not the whole reality. The patriarchal locum tenens, or a temporary or interim uh, leader of the Russian church, Metropolitan Sergei Stragorodsky, wrote a rousing letter on June 22, 1941, which was the very day of the German attack. And this letter was called the Message to the Pastors and Flock of Christ's Orthodox Church. And in this message, he wrote about the, quote, Antichrist essence of fascism. He called for the defense of the Soviet Union against the, quote, wretched offspring of the enemies of Orthodox Christianity. Why would Orthodox Christians fight for the state that had brutally oppressed them before the war? It must be remembered that Russia was culturally and historically Orthodox Christian, despite the present so Soviet atheist reality. Kievan Rus, considered, which is considered uh, Russia's ancient predecessor, had converted to Eastern Christianity or Orthodox Christianity in 988. The Soviet Union was only a few decades old by the start of the Great Patriotic War. According to some, this fact had forced Stalin to tone down Soviet anti-religious rhetoric. In 1943, restrictions on religion were eased, and the Moscow Patriarch was, Patriarchate was recreated. This also served to reunite or this also served to reunite Orthodox Christianity. It allowed the Muscovite religious organization to resume its dominant role in the faith at the expense of the Revisionist Church, which was a pro-Soviet faction whose origins went all the way back to the Revolution of 1905. The war with Germany was thus a period of restoration for the ROC. In October 1941, well before the 1943 resurrection of the Patriarchate, Metropolitan Sergei held a meeting with clergymen, he conducted ordinations, and they discussed the restoration of religious life. It's quite ironic that Stalin might become the church's earthly restorer in 1943, officially ending the persecution. But under the new paradigm of church-state cooperation, there were significant efforts to strengthen, to strengthen the Russian Orthodox Church organization. For example, Stalin gave the, they gave the church its own bank accounts, which it used to make donations for the war effort. As a former persecutor of the church, Stalin would certainly have been viewed as an enemy of God. Yet others have held the opposite view, including a modern Orthodox priest named Dmitry Dudko. Dudko wanted Stalin's image to be rehabilitated, for him, in his view, Stalin appeared to be an atheist, but he was actually a Christian. The restoration of the Moscow Patriarchate would fit with this narrative. Another religious account, written in 2006, mentions how Stalin helped the ROC, but fails to discuss his battle against faith before the German invasion. Katya Richters notes that in 2006, during the Patriarchate of Alexei II, Stalin's atheism was in fact ignored. 
In such literature, Stalin helped the church and was an effective military commander. The work of Kathy Ruslet should be mentioned here, for it explains how the painful legacy of atheistic communism is molded with the ROC's memory of the war against Hitler as a holy struggle. After the glasnost, or open, openness period of the 1980s, society was able to delve into Stalin's oppression against religion, and now the church could conduct research on and publish books about this topic. Churches on spilled blood became sites that memorialized the victims of communistic atheism, and these churches allowed religious services to be held for them. The anti-religious Soviet Union thus became, in memory, a sort of martyr nation, but it was also Holy Russia that fought atheism in, 19, in the 1940s. Ruslet suggested that the martyrs became examples for modern Orthodox Christians. She argues that this religious memorialization of the Stalinist period makes the martyrs like the heroes of the Great Patriotic War. The martyrs died for the sake of Orthodox Holy Russia and not the atheistic Soviet Union. In this way, Ruslet says that these martyrs continued the legacy of the Russians that fought the Tatars and Napoleon. They fought, so to speak, for the same national idea as the Soviet Union soldiers. Patriotism was certainly a factor in the ROC during the Great Patriotic War. And so we've looked at some of Metropolitan Sergei's letter of June 22, 1941. It was hardly a lackluster response to the invasion. As Dmitry Pospilovsky has said, the church leader wrote this letter on the first day of the war, while Stalin hid from the public for ten days. At the war's beginning, Sergei the churchman showed more initiative and resolve than Stalin. A new, modern version of the Third Rome could be seen in which the Soviet nation was sacred, and religion was only too glad to help stoke the fires of patriotism. Patriotism can appeal to almost anyone, whether or not they are religious. This national fervor was evident within the body of believers at the time. For in response to Metropolitan Sergei's address, church, member, church members are said to have voluntarily donated money, government loans, jewelry, and footwear to the needs of the front lines. Orthodox Christians also collected funds for the raising of a Dormitu Donskoy armored division. Russian Orthodoxy looks back with pride upon the eventual Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany. In both Russia and Belarus, the Church commemorates victory over fascism, and in their official commemorations they are grateful for the Soviet Union's defenders during that conflict. On August, 20, on August 16, 2013, the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Kursk, the Patriarch of Moscow and of, and of all Russia, Kirill, met with veterans of the Great Patriotic War. These veterans had fought in battles from the Siege of Moscow to the Battle of Berlin, and the Patriarch awarded some of them with the Orthodox Church's religious decorations. This ceremony occurred in the rebuilt cathedral known as Church Christ the Savior, a church that was first built after the Russian Empire beat the French Emperor Napoleon in 1812, had been destroyed by the Soviet government in 1931, but rebuilt in the year 2000. On May 9, 2014, Orthodox youth celebrated Victory Day in Moscow by praying for deceased soldiers and then setting out for Gorky Park. Some wore World War II-era military garb as they congratulated veterans with gifts and flowers. Veterans thanked the youngsters and spoke earnestly about their wartime experiences. They talked about being atheists before the war, but eventually coming to Orthodoxy. God was with them, they believed, in hopeless situations which allowed them and the nation to emerge victorious. The veterans still cherished this triumph. But they also spoke about compassion, 
the seeds of which were said to have been planted during the war's dark days. The conflict has been perceived as a moment through which Russia's soul was tested and purged. Numerous religious stories appear in which the war has, had a, has a great effect on individuals. We already looked at veterans learning to trust God through their time on the front. There is also the story of a, quote, letter to God. Supposedly, this letter was found on a soldier killed in the war, but its, its actual authenticity is doubted. The soldier wrote about looking at a beautiful night sky and coming to belief in God. He berates himself for not having faith earlier in his life, and he asks God to forgive his past atheism. In such narratives, the war strikes fear in soldiers' hearts, which draws them to faith. In this kind of literature, God cared for soldiers, but the war also had a cathartic effect on people's souls. Metropolitan Sergei himself said as much in, in 1941, believing that the war would heal national spirituality and cure such ills as selfishness and the lack of patriotism. The war was a battle of civilizations, according to one A. Kravchenko. He argued that at the Battle of Stalingrad, the rational, irreligious civilization of, national, of Nazi Germany tried to defeat the Soviet Union's conservative, idealistic, and religious culture. When the Russians, or orthodoxy, ultimately won at Stalingrad, it was a victory for spirituality. The Department for Relations with the Armed Forces and Law Enforcement Agencies, also known as Drafli, is an important propagator of this religious narrative about the Great Patriotic War. The ROC created this organization in July 1995 as part of the church's role in Russian society. Drafli's purpose, as defined in 1996, is to serve soldiers' spiritual needs, establish places of worship for the military, and educate soldiers to become better Christians and patriots. This group has produced much of the material described above, such as the Letter to God and A. Kravchenko's views on Stalingrad. There was also Drafli's director, Father Dmitry Smirnov. In 2003, Father Smirnov spoke of soldier sacrifices during the World War II in the light of Jesus Christ's words, No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for his friends. And you can find the original words of Jesus Christ in John 15:13 in the Bible. Smirnov took the word friends here to mean fellow citizens, equating patriotic sacrifice with Christ's commands for Christians to love and perhaps even die for each other. In 1941, Metropolitan Sergei himself quoted this passage of scripture in reference to any soldier or other patriot who would suffer the ultimate sacrifice for the country's safety. And one can certainly comment, I should comment here, that one can certainly look at Jesus' words in looking to Jesus Christ himself. John 15, 13 was said just before Jesus died on the cross to save believers from their sins, right? So that one would comment that that would be the ultimate context of, of Jesus, uh, Jesus' death. And so greater love has no man than this, going to the cross and dying for his friend's sins. So continuing on with with the episode, I believe it's it's worthwhile to briefly discuss the memory of the war and political legitimacy. So we've talked a bit about how the church views the war, and now let's look a bit about how the memory of the war affects the Russian government. In 2014, someone named Tikhon Dziadko wrote a rather critical article, and it was posted on the website New Republic. And in this article, 
Tikhon Diesko wrote, suggested that a common historical memory is Russia's only suitable unifier, since Russia is a large country with multiple languages, and Russia also has multiple ethnicities. The only other thing that Russian, citizen ha Russian citizens have in common, believed the author, is a corrupt governmental system. This article was in fact very critical of Russian culture in general, arguing that the country has no effective national memory other than the Great Patriotic War. According to this view, the war is the country's only historical event that is unambiguous. It affected so many people across so many cultural and religious lines that most modern Russians agree, with, agree on it, regardless of their background or language. President Vladimir Putin has appropriated this memory to increase his legitimacy. By summoning the memory of Russia's defeat of fascism back in 1945, he suggests that Russia will, still has a role to play in maintaining world peace and security. According to this article we just looked at, Putin even uses the Great Patriotic War's religious element by associating himself with the unification of orthodoxy. Considering the importance of orthodoxy in Russian society, the positive impact of this on Putin's legitimacy and popularity is obvious. The memory of World War II in Russia has caused strained relationships with foreign nations, and the ROC has been involved in some of these controversies. The Soviet victory in the Great Patriotic War allowed Russian rule and influence to expand. In the post-Soviet world, this has caused the Russian government and the Russian Orthodox Church to get involved in their neighbors' internal affairs when it appeared that Russia's national memory was being insulted. For example, in Estonia, a statue called the Bronze Soldier had been built in memory of Soviet soldiers who lost their lives in World War II. But in May 2007, the Estonian government moved the monument to an Estonian military cemetery. Vladimir Putin's government condemned the action, but Alexei II, then Patriarch of the ROC, also got political by, by agreeing with the Russian state, calling the Estonian government's move sacrilegious disregard of wartime sacrifice. This sacrifice, he argued, was part of the Soviet heritage which both Russians and Estonians shared. He believed the incident surrounding the bronze soldier indicated that fascism was again rearing its ugly head. The patriarch also suggested that the Estonian government wanted to insult Russians. In saying this, Alexei repeated the xenophobic views of some nationalistic Orthodox Russians. It is important to realize that in Russia, the church and state do not always see to eye to eye. For example, Though Alexei II supported the Russian government's view in the case of the bronze soldier, he did not want his church to become an agent of the state. But Katya Richters reminds us that the government and the Russian church might take similar actions because they both want to preserve the memory of times when Russia was a great power under the Soviet Union. This includes the memory of World War II. The religious character of the war is an undeniable part of this memory, as we have seen in the writings of the Drafli organization, religious nationalism, the ROC's commemoration of veterans, and the Patriarch's involvement in foreign controversy over a monument. Considering the extreme importance of both the Great Patriotic War and Russian Orthodoxy in Russian society and politics, it is unlikely that the narrative of God's struggle against fascism will go away anytime soon. Well, that's it for this episode, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, again, you can listen to a much longer version, episode 8, which is a few hours long. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed the podcast show in general, and uh, if you would like to donate, uh, some, uh, pledge some funds to it uh, via Patreon, I'd really much appreciate it. It helps the podcast keep going. And uh, thanks again for listening, and have a great day.
And here's something a little different as well. This is a little bit of a blooper reel because uh, sometimes editing, although a very important part of podcast production, it's also kind of a tedious one. This sacrifice, he argued, was part of the Soviet heritage which, which with the both this sacrifice, he argued, was part of the Soviet heritage, which with This sacrifice, he argued, was part of the Soviet heritage, which with Which both? Come on, man.